Uh, hello and welcome to our podcast, Traveling Time with Books, where Nidhi and I will be discussing today The Rebel Sultans by Manu S. Pillai. The book is a fascinating recounting of an interesting but often overlooked period in the Deccan history where a few upstart nobles decided to not follow the script and see what happens. As things unfolded and crowns exchanged heads, the Deccan unfolded into a cosmopolitan landscape where Persian Westerners, Dakhani, nobles, and Ethiopian soldiers each added their influence to it. But as, what, as with much medieval history, it also remained, remained a land fraught with conflict, sometimes between our rebel sultans, sometimes within sultanates, and sometimes from yet more dangerous rivals such as the Mughals. So there is a great tradition in the Deccan of poetry, and I found this shade from Malaka Bai, to encapsulate the inferred state of mind of our rebel uh, sultans that I'd like to share here at this point. So here it goes. Gul ke hone ki tawakko pe jiye baiti hai Har kali jaan ko mutthi me liye baiti hai Kabhi sayyad ka khatka hai Kabhi khauf e khizan Bulbul ab jaan hatheli pe liye baiti hai so Malaka Bai, a rare woman poet from anywhere in India, let alone the Deccan, grew up in Hyderabad and was influential in the court of the third Nizam of Hyderabad. For me, these couplets, I like them very much because they describe somewhat what I inferred as the state of mind of our rebel sultans, where, you know, on the one hand, there is ambition very much to grow bigger. And also the constant danger that they faced. Uh, and this tension between ambition uh, and precarity comes across in the choices the protagonists in the book face and how they leave their imprint on the land. Now, talking to us about the book is its author, Manu, a celebrated historian and writer of award-winning books, including The Ivory Throne and the excitingly titled The Courtesan, uh, the Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin. I read an interview where Manu is quoted as having said, it isn't dates and events that interest me as such. It is the people who made those dates and events matter. Whether you lived in the 15th century or in the 20th, while contexts change, human behavior doesn't really. People fought, loved, built things, destroyed things, had sex, judged each other and paraded hypocrisy as we do today, end quote. And it's very much this interest, I think, that informs his approach to writing history, evident in plenty in the book, The Rebel Sultans. So Manu, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much also for the, for the gazal. I, would, I couldn't have said it myself <laughs> with such grace and effect. Uh, she, she's a really lovely poet, I have to say, Mala Kabai. Yes. So, uh, okay, so I'm going to start by, by talking about one part of the book, which both Nidhi and I discussed at length. The book mm -hmm. makes a case that the Deccan was a cosmopolitan place and even an inclusive place, that faith mm -hmm. did not drive conflict. And there are many yeah. examples of this in the book, uh, you know, among the Hindu kings, Devaraya too had Muslims in his service, allotting them estates, building a mosque for their use. Before then, Hoysalas had employed Muslims in their army. Similarly, you know, we find that the Bahamani Sultan Hassan Gangu was one of the earliest Muslim kings to declare that no jizya should be collected from non-Muslims in lieu of military service. And he invited local Hindu princes to be a part of the Bahamani court. And Overall, it is not as if Muslim sultans fought together as a single bloc against Hindu rajas or that battle lines were drawn purely based on religion. Yet, both Nidhi and I felt that Islam was a strong part of the ruler's identity, the Muslim ruler's identity, the sultan's identity. They looked towards Iran for legitimacy and protection. There was a preoccupation with Persian things and culture. Now, for Ibrahim Shah, who I really, Ibrahim Shah too, I found him very fascinating. Uh, to be surrounded by, for him to be surrounded by non-Muslim influences gave powerful parties in the state cause to worry. Feroz Shah, uh, again, very interesting character, I thought, really seeking, you know, that that uh, seeking immigrants and for, for uh, foreign influence. He would send, send ships to bring back foreigners, but foreigners largely of Islamic faith, of his own faith. And you say in the book, on the one hand, it sheltered the monarch surrounding him with Muslims he could trust. On the other hand, 
the influx of young men from Islamic networks also helped design the cultural identity of a royal line of recent vintage, which is in contrast to Deccan's past uh, rulers. Now, based on this and other examples, I certainly took away the impression that uh, even if religion did not drive conflict, it was an important part of the ruler's identity in terms of influence and imprint. And I have two questions attached to this observation that I'd like to understand in more detail. So one, if religion did not play a part in defining who was an enemy and who was an ally, how did religion manifest itself in the everyday lives of the rulers and their decision making? What, what was indeed the implication uh, of being a Muslim ruler on, on the land that they ruled? And second, which is related, is that we've got a view of the elites, you know, the fact that for instrumental reasons, they are willing to incorporate uh, Hindu people into their army or Hindu nobles into the court, uh, but, but you know, mostly for the political reasons and so on. But we're also very curious about the ruled, the population of the Deccan at that time. Who were the people? How did they carry these religious identities and feel about importing uh, some of these cultural practices from Persia? So very long question, and I will stop here <laughs> and let you get on with it. So I think, you know, the as I say, I think somewhere in the book, perhaps at the beginning of the Vijayanagara chapter, uh, I do mention that there was certainly an awareness of, let's say, an us and them. You know, there was, it wasn't as though religion was absent. There was an awareness that there were certain religious differences. The only argument is that we must not overstate it and make everything look like a clash of civilizations, uh, while at the same time recognizing that religion did exist. Now, even if you take examples of people trying to build bridges, you know, whether it's Eknath, whose poetry features both the Turk as well as the Brahmin, as well as the untouchable, uh, as well as even a Habshi, an African uh, slave immigrant, for example, uh, you, you take somebody like Kabir in North India, who's also talking about how ultimately both the Muslims and the, the Hindus and their priests have not found God, and you know, there's, he, he, has, he has his own take on it. But they're also implicitly accepting that there is a religious divide that deserves to be bridged, deserves to be conquered, or at least deserves to be understood. Now, the difference really lies in how this religion manifests, as your second part of your question sort of posed, in the lives of the people and in the lives of the kings. Kingship is still, in great measure, an understudied area of, of Indian history, really. Because what we often find is that what kingly behavior is understood as mass behavior, which is not true. If I had to rephrase that, I'd put it this way. A king, in defining his kingship, would fall back on religious identity. So when Shivaji emerges in the Deccan, he decides that he will define his, his kingship in an environment of, of Muslim rulers where he was seen originally as a rebel, as somebody who had come up, as somebody who, was, who had no legitimate stake in the system. He therefore fell back on older, classical Hindu ideals of kingship and constructed his kingly image using the Hindu faith and whatever Hinduism, Hinduism is a much later term, but you see what I mean, what that could offer. Islamic kings similarly, especially the early sultans of the Deccan who had just come into this area, they often fell back, again partly because they were aliens ruling over a different uh, set of people, even as they built bridges practically, that is they ensured that their tax collectors were locals, they ensured their bureaucrats who were Brahmins, they made sure that a lot of uh, subordinate chieftains were co-opted into their system. All the same, they burnished their kingly credentials with what was, what was familiar to them, which was Persianate culture, the Persian language, Islamic traditions, and developed their ideas of kingship based on that. Now, this is how kings operated. Kings necessarily defined themselves formally using religion, which did not mean, however, that all their actions were guided by religious dogma. Uh, to give a very contemporary example, you know, our founding fathers created the constitution with very many lofty values. But from day one, the constitution has in different degrees been subverted by different uh, governments that have existed in India. Which is to say, it doesn't mean they've all sort of repudiated the constitution. They all pay lip service to it. They all, many of them at least, accepted that this was the ultimate goal. What the constitution projects is where we hope Indian society will end up in an ideal world. But all the same, uh, you know, life involved a number of compromises and making uh, arrangements and settlements with people who may not necessarily buy into the constitutional narrative. And this has been the case from the start. And it's something similar with the, with the, with the sultans as well. On the ground, however, with what you would call the ordinary person, religion took a slightly different form. 
religion was, you know, to use that much quoted term, syncretic, you know, the experience of religion was a very syncretic one, because it did not matter if a, a, a prominent holy man in your locality was a Hindu or a Muslim, so long as he was deemed a sufficiently holy man. And there were various parameters by which this was decided. You take the case, I mean, forget the Deccan for a second, you take the Rajputs and, you know, you think of them as staunch defenders of Hinduism and so on. But you find, no, uh, you know, they had tribal gods they worshipped. Similarly, they had Sufi saints they went to. An entire sort of lineage of the Rajputs are called Sheikhavats because apparently the first of them was born by the blessings of uh, a Sheikh Burhan. And since then, all of those descendants were called Shekhavats. In, in the Deccan, you know, Shivaji's grandfather, Maloji Posle, uh, the story goes, and this is in Shivaji's own Shiva Bharata that was composed under his supervision by his own court poet. He says that his grandparents did not have children, therefore they went to uh, uh, Shah Sharif, a local Sufi Muslim, and he blessed them, uh, blessed the couple, and that's how they had their two sons. And in honor of the Sufi saint, they named the older son Shahaji and the younger son Sharif. G, which is basically different parts of the Sufi saint's name. So even Shivaji's grandparents, when they were relatively ordinary, they were not at the level of kings, you know, they were ordinary but influential people, you know, village heads at that level. Their religion, religious attitude, their religious practices did not you know, it did not present some kind of a stark divide where they said, oh, this is the mosque and we will have nothing to do with it and this is the temple, therefore we will only go to the temple. There's a slight uh, sort of overlap between these two things. Just as you find in Karnataka, all kinds of places, Kerala, you go to the Shabrimala temple, you still find that you have to first go to the mosque of Babar, which sounds suspiciously like Babar, but, you know, it, it's again part, it's been incorporated into a mass sort of practice of religion and a mass practice of pilgrimage. So there is a distinction to be made between what kings said, how what kings said officially and how they defined themselves. Then there's a distinction to be made with how they actually acted. And then finally, there is a third level, which is where the ordinary people operated, where they may in different degrees subscribe to certain ideas, but people were far more, it was far more porous. These boundaries that, that became perhaps starker and starker as you moved up the class ladder, all the way up to kings and their level, somewhere at the bottom it was much more porous, things could flow this way and that way, uh, and, and you know, there was a kind of syncretism that existed over there. Again, this is not to say that people were unaware of religious difference, but uh, it should not be overstated to suggest that everything was defined purely and everything was motivated purely by uh, that religious difference. You, you know, one of the, uh, and again, you know, political formations also, you look at the uh, the Samastan states under the Nizams of Hyderabad, since you quoted Malakabai from Hyderabad, I'll give that as an example. You know, some of these Samastan states which continued all the way till 1949, they were originally subordinate to the Kakatiyas, then the Kakatiyas fall in the late medieval period to the Delhi Sultans, then they became subjects of the Delhi Sultans. After that, the Delhi Sultans go, the Bahmanis emerge, they become subjects of the Bahmanis. After the Bahmanis, you have the successor states of the Bahmanis, and they become subordinate to the Qutub Shah of Golconda. And finally, in the 18th century, the Nizams of Hyderabad, representing the Mughals, emerge, and they become subordinates of the Mughals, in which condition the Samastans exist all the way till 1949. So what you see is the top layer, in some sense, constantly keeps shifting, and it's a series of Muslim rulers who come and go, Muslim dynasties, which that come and go. But under that, under that top soil, there's a constant for about 800 years of the same dynasty with more or less the same cultural attitudes, etc. continuing, who are absorbing certain Persianate and certain Islamic ideas, but they're also preserving certain of their original uh, Hindu identity and managing to balance this constantly. And it, it continues between uh, the 14th century all the way till the uh, mid-20th century. So it's again a little, yeah, it, it's a fairly complex kind of uh, scenario to work with. Uh, you know, what, what, as I said earlier, right at the start of this answer, we sometimes in tracing the past look at what kings said in their official records and their official articulation of kingship and give that a communal color and assume that oh look all Hindus must have believed this because XYZ king is saying this. That's not necessarily true. You know, the, the king may say something, but the very armies by which he ends up attacking, let's say, a, a Muslim king comes to attack a, a Hindu king, it, it, one can't really say that most of their army was all, like, uniformly Muslim. It would be Hindu soldiers also in the same army that's attacking the Muslim, the, the Hindu king on the other side. So, again, it's, it's, it's a very mixed up kind of situation. But, uh, you know, so without stating that religion was completely absent, 
I would argue that religion was not as dominant a force as it has generally been made out to be on literature of the, on the Deccan Sultans and Vijayanagara. It was one of several strands and several influences that existed, not the predominant strand or the predominant influence. Great. I think so. You know, thanks. Thanks a lot for that. It it made a lot of things uh, simpler for me. So in in the language that I typically use as part of my research, I think your null hypothesis became clear to me, which I initially thought you're trying to sort of your null hypothesis is that uh, there is no uh, you know no problems uh, between religions. But in fact, your null hypothesis that you're refuting is that there is perhaps too much religious difference, and you're saying no, that is not the case. We shouldn't describe uh, too much. Yeah. So that that helps. And indeed, in fact, you know, your point about we tend to take the statements of the kings as the attitude of the subjects, uh, it, and that's not true, is in that exactly why I wanted to understand what it is that the population felt about it and behaved like. And I hear you say that, in fact, uh, it was even more porous uh, at the level of the population. Do we know anything, Manu, about what the what was the demographic like? I tried to research a little bit uh, on this, but I couldn't find very easily. Like, do we know the composition? How many Hindus? What percentage, rather, Hindus versus Muslims? Not, uh, I mean, not in the format of anything like a modern census. But I think what we do know is that. Typically, a lot of the Hindu influence lay in rural areas. It lay in those sort of uh, dispersed parts of the empire. Muslim power was more visible in the urban nodes because ultimately the Islamic rulers who were ruling over these sultanates, they were a minority in the population. <clears throat> and they therefore occupied the important urban centers, the big cities, the big capitals. But as their power sort of fanned out into the hinterland, it grew weaker and they required Hindu allies. And this is the case, you know, even with the Mughals in, in the north, for example. Of course, uh, you know, theirs was a much bigger empire, a much a vaster kind of landscape. So it, obviously the numbers are slightly different there. But again, you find that Muslim power is concentrated often in certain areas, whereas Hindu influence comes out into the hinterland. Because, you know, these are times when there isn't that kind of state capacity. No empire, no kingdom, and even the Mughals at their peak did not have what we would today call a modern bureaucracy. You know, there was there were these, you always had to deal with local strongmen, you always had to deal with local tribes, you always had to deal with local communities and people, which always meant that even to collect your taxes, you would end up requiring some kind of local partner. Who would, who would assist you in that process. And that, uh, you know, is, is visible in the Deccan Sultanates as well, where you may have, let's say, the Qutub Shah ruling over Golconda, but his patronage of Telugu, his, his, I mean, even the fact that they married uh, so many Hindu, Telugu women, etc., all of this is about building those bridges with existing power holders, existing stakeholders in the region, so that uh, you have a system where you're in charge, but you can't do it without uh, partners who come from the other side or the other faith. Got it. And that, that makes sense, that kind of distribution of uh, Hindus perhaps, you know, being more populated in rural areas and why and also why those alliances would be uh, necessary. That makes sense. But also now that you mentioned the Mughals, I think uh, Nidhi, Nidhi has a question she wanted to ask about that. Right, Nidhi? Yes. And uh, it was fascinating to be listening into Manu talk about, you know, the population at large. Um, and while I do have another question, but um, I'm hoping to gun for another like a general impression that we as readers of books and including history books have is that uh, it's always about like we, we spoke about it like you're saying that we're talking about the kings and the sultans and the more powerful people but if we know that that misrepresents the overall population then why is it that in our books we do not find enough um, material enough information about say the 80% of the population which lived in that time so that this confusion in itself you know um, can escape our minds um, would you yeah I mean there's there's a little bit of I mean to begin with one problem is that you know the the sources of information naturally they they more they sort of dwindle when you go further down into the large mass right. of people. This is a time where kings are constantly cons you know co sort of commissioning poetry about them. They're commissioning works of art. They're commissioning buildings and monuments. They they have kings have an interest in leaving a record behind. Whereas yeah. a large number of the masses are not active.
actively leaving individual records of what is happening. Of course, there are exceptions, but for most part, what we can see is ripples, what we can see is trends, what we can see, say, for instance, around a temple, for example, in its history, you can construct what the life of the community may have been. There would have been people who supplied flowers, there would have been people who were the priests, there would have been people who were kept away, there would have been people who came as attackers. All of that through the history of the temple as an institution, you may be able to gauge something about the communities that revolved around that uh, particular temple. But a lot of the, you know, the, the, the more sort of pointed is historical evidence comes from royal courts and from people who are close to royal courts. So even courtesans, you know, you take the 18th century case of Mudupalni in Tanjavur who wrote the Radhika Santhwanamu, a work of, of erotica really. She was again associated with the Tanjavur court. I'm sure a lot of other Devdasis were, were, were you know, poets and so on, but not all of them are known by name. In fact, there's a very interesting and provocative article about how the the, the famous Shetraya and a lot of the Padams ascribed to Shetraya in South India may actually have been the work of a lot of Devdasis who have remained nameless and all of that work has got lumped under Shetraya's name. It's a fascinating thing because this is essentially again what you see when you talk about the masses, right? That you yes. know patterns, but you don't necessarily always know individual stories. There are rare exceptions. There are stories of merchants because, you, say, XYZ merchant patronized a particular poet who then paid homage to the merchant in something he wrote. And therefore, you know about the poet's existence or the, the merchant's existence. Yeah. Sorry. So there are a few exceptions, but for most part, a lot of the material is political. A lot of the material is uh, kingly. And in my case, anyway, you know, this book was, I don't work generally on this period. I work mostly on the modern period. This was written really out of my own curiosity and feeling that there was a space. There was something missing when we came to the Deccan because I grew up here. You know, I grew up in Maharashtra and here in our textbooks, uh, we read a lot about Shivaji and the Mughals. There'd be these cameo appearances by these Deccan sultans. And I always found myself looking for books about, uh, for books about them, but there, were not, there was nothing available. Yeah. There were these, you know, bits and pieces and fragments. And then, of course, there's some academic work on specific characters or specific periods, but nothing that sort of put together a political history prior to the rise of, uh, of Shivaji. So I thought, you know, I would, I would try and fill that gap. So this was written very consciously as a kind of political history rather than an overarching, right. uh, all-inclusive kind of history of the Deccan, which I don't think I'm equipped to do because, you know, there's firstly the languages that are requisite. I, I can do Marathi, but I can't do Telugu and Kannada and pick up, let's say, the oral accounts that exist uh, of the people from that time. Uh, similarly, Persian, the original Persian sources, I relied on translations. Uh, but again, I don't work generally on the period, so it's not within my cap capacity to invest that kind of energy. So I thought I would do what I could do, which is uh, a simple, short political history of the period, which was as much about me filling a kind of craving in my heart <laughs> as about putting a book out for other people to also discover the Deccan. No, I'm glad that you did. And so many of us are discovering it, uh, thanks to your book. Uh, but yeah, I think um, that uh, kind of, uh, as you evolve as a reader, you kind of realize that it's, you know, the classic, that history, uh, until the lines, you know, they until the masses, yeah. in this case, we end up, it's a challenge, <laughs> it's a technical challenge, I understand. But uh, yeah. as long as we are aware and this conversation has been very helpful because like Kamini was saying. You do, though, I must say, you do actually find more about the masses in the travel diaries of foreigners. So even, mm -hmm. uh, what's his name, Nikitin Afnasi, if I'm not pronouncing it wrong, the Russian traveler who came to the Deccan, um, you know, he talks about poverty. He talks about the fact that these, these kingdoms are all very great. And by the way, this is something that was said about a lot of Indian kingdoms everywhere that the cities were extremely, exceedingly rich. Uh, there was a lot of splendor. There were great buildings. There were poets, artists, courtesans, you know, great. Everything was like quite splendid about the cities. But on the way to these cities, you end up uh, ended up seeing that a lot of the people lived in relative misery. And so you have accounts from foreigners like him. You also have accounts from, say, English travelers who talk, uh, I forget the name, I think William something. He's in my bibliography, you see. Uh, he talks about the gold mines in Golconda and how the yeah. people were paid for the work every day in those mines. That gives you a sense of how they lived. Another traveler talks about how even kids as young as eight were smoking tobacco because tobacco had become such a passion and it was available, uh, including to the large mass. It wasn't just some kind of luxury good. Uh, it was quite popular in, in various parts of the Deccan, uh, including among common people. So in the eyes of foreign travelers, who of course come with their own baggage, sometimes come with their own religious dogmas and so on, even so, you can see something more about the lives of the common people as opposed to courtly narratives and, you know, the, the narratives around everything that was happening at the center of political power. 
Right, right. No, I think it also puts a little bit of onus on us to look at all views and then come yeah. to our conclusions about what the time was like. All right, yeah. uh, that's that's great, and I think it fits in nicely with uh, you know what we were just talking about. Uh, why uh, do you think it is that now for so many of us, for me for sure, um, this book has been a window into um, the magnificence that was the Deccan, and um, I would think. uh at some stage you know all of us in our say late 30s 40s we are reading we went to reasonable schools we are decently read people why is it that the deccan is something which is unfolding now to us uh, thanks to books like yours uh what do you think would be a reason that it was never um something that you know was probably a part of history that was marketed better let's say that why didn't it reach us before <laughs> yeah you know as i said earlier you know a lot of what comes down to us even say somebody like emperor akbar for example you know there's a lot of court poetry there's a lot of writing around these places and people in in the case of the deccan one thing that happened is that by the 80 by the late 17th century the deccan sultanates had disappeared uh, they'd all been conquered by the moguls and very quickly the big centers of these places which is where the poets were which is where the chroniclers were which is where the artists were those places became provincial outposts of the mogul empire no longer centers of a big kingdom but just provincial uh, towns from where this kind of talent that would have recorded its histories and recorded its stories ended up migrating to other places so with the exception of hyderabad because the nizams came to hyderabad and then turned it into the nizam city uh, you know the, the golconda fort for example it was used for a long time by the nizams as a prison they formed their own identity their own constructions their own sort of physical uh, presence in hyderabad quite separately to the qutubshahs because of that hyderabad history has sort of kept alive something but even that if you go and ask ordinary people there today it's mostly fixated on the nizams people know the qutubshahi tombs they know about the fort but not very much about the qutubshahs uh, beyond that so if that's the case of hyderabad which survived with some degree of splendor and greatness into the modern period you can imagine that bijapur ahmednagar which became firstly war zones while they were being conquered the, the, the ahmednagar sultanate in particular took decades to conquer it and it was sort of hacked at uh, over different periods by the moguls you know they, they sort of the, the populations dwindled the kind of talent there all of that disappeared so firstly when there are no storytellers left to tell the story of a certain place that slowly sort of disappears from general consciousness i guess the other thing is of course a much more contemporary problem which is that partly because of the fixation with hindu versus muslim the deccan's history has been reduced to this clash of titans you know aurangzeb representing the worst of islamic power and shivaji representing the most heroic of hindu power some kind of you know a belated resistance to uh, islamic tyranny and so on and so forth that has sort of overwhelmed the history of the deccan and that's not just the deccan sultanates even the the, the medieval period anirudh kanisetti has now written a book on the medieval period and it it again reminds you of course that's also unfortunately you know we again have, see a lot about kings there and not enough about common people because again the resources privileged king the kings the evidence privileges kings over over ordinary people but it tells a very wonderful story for some reason as he argues in that book you come to the guptas and then you jump straight i think to the delhi sultanate and this huge gap which is where they had these huge empires and kingdoms in the deccan uh, they completely eclipsed so there's okay. that whole issue and the final thing is that there is unfortunately in our country a, a delhi fixation it's often things are reduced to delhi and that being the center of power partly because it's the center of power even now and that uh, and, and and everything else is almost treated as delhi versus the rest so that slight fixation with delhi that slight fixation with north india and the dynamics of north india have led not only to the neglect of the deccan as an area but neglect of other subjects also such as india's maritime history for a country with such a vast coastline which has had so much international trade over so many centuries we don't know enough and we don't talk enough about our maritime trade we don't talk enough about our maritime cultural influences and that uh, the impact that had on indian history you know not very many people think about the fact that the portuguese in india had arrived decades before the first mughal set foot in north india we don't actually realize or you know consciously that chronology exists and perhaps something about the colonial period actually begins with the arrival of the portuguese and uh, you know which was several years before the arrival of the mughals so there's a lot uh, of neglect in that sense towards uh, as you come further south and i think the deccan's also been generally a casualty to that trend
Absolutely. I think um, in the previous podcast also, I remember us feeling very cheated <laughs> by historians, was it? Or it's just <laughs> the people who market history better because um, uh, the other challenge uh, which we usually face, and I, I thought that was beautifully addressed in your book, is where you're talking of so many different factors. So if you're talking of the South, if you're talking of Deccan, it's not just in isolation at a point of time. But what was happening up north, what was happening in the Sultanate, what was it, uh, you know, what were the interactions of all these variables, which probably I think is a much better way of talking of history. Unfortunately, the way we have always thought of it is that I'm reading about, say, uh, the Gupta or the Mauryas, but we never think of so many interactions. Um, I yeah. remember when um, Kamini and I talk now, so um, the other day we were saying that if you realize that uh, somewhere in your mind, you know, that uh, say Baswa or uh, are she's walking around without clothes here, or there's a conversation yeah. even about women yeah. and their rights and in 1100, and then you go ahead to 1200 and you realize, oh, Razia is still fighting to think what veil she should wear so that she doesn't get toppled from the throne. And it makes you wonder yeah, yeah. that, you know, such a contrast in 100 years later still. And I think that's, yeah. how, um, that's how our kids hopefully should read it so that it's a whole rather than, you know, these points in isolation. Yes. You know, India is, and as, as it still is, you know, it's a very large country and there's so much happening at the same time in so many different corners, right? You, It's very tough sometimes to sort of fully grasp all of it. I think even the most accomplished historian cannot fully... I, I don't think anybody can claim to be a master of Indian history as a whole. You know, you, you can be a master of certain segments and even within those segments, particular layers, particular periods. Uh, but sort of gaining some kind of co comprehensive control over the Indian narrative is not an easy proposition. And I don't think it's humanly possible, precisely for this reason that uh, there are so many things happening, contrasting, contradictory things happening sometimes at the same time. And, and you know, for some reason, it, it, it looks as if nothing impacts the other. Uh, of course, this takes us to Sudhita Kavraj's famous argument about, you know, these circles within circles, how Indian society was uh, always making space for new circles, but no circle, very rarely did one circle dissolve into another, you know, so difference was accepted, but very little sort of merging or homogenizing took place uh, across different periods. The other thing is also geography, you know, we, we don't give that enough due in the evolution of history in India and historical processes in India, which is that geography, if you take a place like Kerala, which which is my, where my, my ancestors came from, you find that the most powerful kings derived their power and influence and wealth not from control over territory, but from control over ports, because trade and pepper was how they uh, made their money. And as they went inland, their power actually depleted more and more, and local authorities and chieftains became more and more powerful. Now, they had an interest in also participating in the paper trade and the kings had an interest in keeping the chieftains uh, on their side as well but they were constantly shifting balances and geography impacted that you know Kerala's cross crisscrossed by like dozens of rivers uh, many of these uh, flood and there are certain times of the year when battles were impossible etc so even Kerala's military form formation even the way military culture formed uh, in Kerala was impacted by its geography there were very few cases of large battles with large armies of tens of thousands of people of Often battles were settled in angams or these they would you know create stages and each party would send a chosen warrior and it was very sort of low cost low bloodshed kind of uh, uh, settlement of political disputes because the local geography did not allow for certain things to evolve in that region till very late in the day it was only the 18th century that standing armies and all of that uh, appear for the first time in Kerala even uh, a form of kingship and, and, and monarchy as that happened elsewhere in India several centuries before, you start seeing that appearing in Kerala in a much later period. So geography, region, uh, you know, all of these things uh, ultimately impact the flow of history. And uh, trying to soft, therefore sort of fit all of Indian history into one single narrative, one single theoretical frame, one single way of approaching it doesn't work because there isn't one single right. anything to Indian history. Yeah, and I would think it's not even just Indian, right? It, uh, I mean, in reading this book, it left us wondering why this obsession with the Westerners constantly, you know, the Sultanate that did even the Sultans down here. Uh, even they are always trying to, you know, um, uh, move for and get favors from the whole Western 
uh, folks. They're getting yeah. those people in. There's a certain aspiration to culture um, that should belong to that days, even for the Adil Shahs. So yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine that cutting it out uh, would be a big challenge. And say this is where I draw draw my boundary. Yeah. Um, in fact, even this whole obsession with you know Persianate culture. it has multiple layers and strands to it on the one hand it was political in that the moguls as they became powerful started pressing on the sultans of the deccan saying you must recognize our suzerainty because we are the big uh, power in india so so long as you you sort of stay in check stay in line and recognize us as your superiors maybe we'll let you survive one way the deccan sultans managed to stay practically autonomous but also kept away mughal pressure to recognize their supremacy was by paying court uh, to the Persian emperor, because look at them. The Persian emperor is sitting very far away. He's an ocean away. Yes, there are trade links. There's a lot of cultural contact with Persia, but there's a very small chance of the Persian emperor actually physically coming with an army and imposing his writ on the Deccan sultans. So having the Persian emperor, the Shah of Iran, as a kind of uh, nominal overlord allows them to. Stave off the Mughals and their pressure to accept Mughal supremacy. So it's a it's a kind of balancing act where you manage to get the Shah of Iran nominally as your head to keep the Mughals at a distance. And of course, the Shah of Iran it paid political dividends also. There's this one instance where uh, the Mughals have a campaign in the Deccan, and the Shah of Iran actually says, "Please allow these kingdoms to continue. I will come to the a, a separate settlement in return with the Mughals about Afghanistan, so long as you leave the Deccan sultans alone." and this again now the question would be why would the shah of iran do this very simple because for him also even though he did not have direct control over the deccan sultanates in fact his control was so weak that when he went to the qutub shah's or rather sent an embassy to the qutub shah's court and asked for his daughter in marriage the qutub shah could say no even so the persian shah's kingly prestige his imperial personality and being able to flaunt that he had these three four sultanates in the deccan that were his vassal states it was important to him you know to his image to his position to kingly identity so you see that each of these players in this you know persianate sort of ecosystem they're all looking for different things and diff- a sort of pursuing different agendas in why they are interested in that persianate culture in that persian exchange uh, with the west the other thing of course is the persian have was the dominant sort of uh, cultural goods in that period in in a huge part of the world uh, you know europe wasn't much in the picture at that time but a huge swath from there on uh, ottoman turkey etc it was about islamic kingdoms and that sort of spread all the way to indonesia over over successive years which is what i think earlier periods you have what, what scholars have called the sanskrit cosmopolis which is sanskrit in a similar way and sanskritic culture spreading out to southeast asia and you know hindu gods hindu narratives epics etc being transmitted to those distant parts in a later period it was persian so much so that you know i this again lots of malayali uh, scholars haven't quite talked about it but it's i was quite stunned to find uh, in the course of my own research on kerala and travancore that when the travancore kings became influential and once they had established their kingship in kerala on very local terms they also sought to be recognized in the persian at world the 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 travancore king in the late 18th century actually got a rather you know defanged powerless shah alam the emperor mughal emperor sitting in delhi to send him a khilaf to send him a, a certification of his pilot title and to appoint him a, at panchhazari level uh, of nobility in the mughal empire because it was important for travancore's legitimacy to have some form of recognition from the mughal emperor even though the mughal emperor no longer had any political influence but that cultural influence mattered even to this hindu king who on a normal day would call himself padmanabh dasa who only connected to shri padmanabh swami his family deity so the same kings often operated with multiple agendas and multiple languages or multiple audiences and this comes across uh, in the deccan sultanates as well so you know it, it, it's always like these constantly overlapping layers and constantly overlapping stories and and trends and influences that exist over there right it's fascinating i think and amazing how they were juggling so many balls left right and center there's so much that's yeah. going on in the mind Uh, of the rulers there. Um, Kamini, we are talking about geography. I know you have yeah. uh, a question about that, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, Manu, they totally uh, preempted um, my question. Almost never happened in all the events I've done so far. No, but very interesting conversation here on the overlapping uh, layers of influences and uh, what goes into decision making and all the intersections. And you're right, of course, Manu, that it's probably impossible to get a handle on all of that for all over India. It's also probably 
not possible to communicate it or it's perhaps too much of a burden even on the reader perhaps to present everything together and all the details so there is some value uh, in simplification in some areas or scoping or you know making those judgments about what you're going to talk about but indeed you know you talked about maritime history and india's large coastline and and i did have a question on geography i mean i'm curious to know how the geography of deccan affected its history the land of the uh, bahmanis and then following them the five breakaway kingdoms of bidar berar ahmednagar bijapur golconda they're sort of sandwiched on both sides uh, but even yeah. if we consider the deccan peninsula more generally it is flanked by mountain ranges the western and eastern ghats along both coastlines it is not connected by land to central asia and persia which i think you do talk a little bit about in the book uh, and the implication of that but it also potentially has easier proximity through the sea to southeast asia and yeah. maybe even parts of europe like you said europe is not very influential at that time perhaps the plateau itself is rel- relatively more arid uh, it's you know difficult terrain to conquer in some ways and that plays out in some of the battles you talk about as well and so more generally yeah. i was curious how do the you know how might the features of its geography geography have influenced the rulers of this region and created a distinctive culture or or you know distinct distinctive landscape for it i think this uh, you know goes back to that earlier question on why they were importing so many persians right because they were often importing architects technicians artillery men or, or what they saw as talents practical talents sometimes that were missing in the deccan as well because they wanted a certain kind of architecture a certain kind of culture to evolve there so that was one thing but geography you know it also reminds me of this other anecdote i think right towards the end of the book i have this quote it's a i think a mughal uh, mughal you know source where he where the, the writer says that oh these marathas are, are rather you know that they become very hard and firm because they come from this geography where it's rather dry and unfertile and so on and they eat lots of spicy food and therefore they become these very hard sturdy kind of warriors which is a commentary on the place which is a commentary on how the 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 landscape of the region the dryness of the region it ultimately affects the evolution of local culture there and results in certain martial qualities or not you know so on and so forth so different areas of the deccan again within the deccan there are certain areas which are more fertile the raichur dob adwa for example for a long time that uh, you know a lot of these these kingdoms kept fighting over raichur earlier it was the bamani sultanate versus vijayanagara and later it was bijapur and its neighbors constantly trying to gain control over it because it was a highly fertile uh, part in the deccan one of those rare areas which was very uh, attractive therefore for different rulers there is also a distinction between the upland deccan and the lowland deccan so the northern part is slightly different in terms of its agrarian patterns and the southern part is again slightly different this also ends up uh, leading to different kind of cultural influences over there uh, in in people's food habits in the way uh, you know the, the political landscape emerges where your forts can be constructed where you can't what kind of military strategies uh, emerge over there guerrilla warfare for which uh, shivaji is rightly famous uh, was not however something he pioneered it existed in the deccan from an earlier period it was it was it was you know part of the local landscape so when large armies from the north with their heavy trains ended up uh, entering the deccan using these hills using the rugged landscape much smaller troops were able to inflict humiliating defeats on them simply because they were able to they were masters of the landscape and they knew exactly how to use that to their advantage which for with foreigners in the sense of moguls or whoever coming from the north coming from a slightly different kind of geography coming from uh, more fertile plains of the gangetic belt etc was slightly unused to this kind of uh, geography and this kind of fighting pattern that emerged in that geography um i think there's something again i wouldn't venture to give too much of an opinion on it but even in the kind of material that's used in construction all of that there's an influence of the local architecture of the local resources that are available to people um you know the, the where the cities and towns are planned where the water is available all of this ultimately ends up affecting not just the placement of cities but the uh, the, the, the local culture that evolves there the way and the attitudes of the people there and so on and so forth so yes i think geography played a big role not only in uh, in in shaping up local culture and the identity and flavors of some of these local kingdoms but also how they behaved vis-a-vis other kingdoms and access to the sea yes i think that was a, a very important thing you find that you know even the bahmanis they captured goa relatively late in the day you know somewhere in the uh, if i'm not mistaken in mahmud gawan's time uh, is when they when they managed to take hold of the deccan which was in the 14 uh, 1470s if i'm not mistaken around then uh, is is when they took hold of goa because 
considering that you have this huge northern uh, barrier where you can't use the land routes very easily the only way you can access persian horses you know and horses were a big important thing for technology at that time you know if you had a strong cavalry you could cut through an uh, an infantry force that was three or four times uh, the size of your cavalry force simply because you had horses and you were swifter and it gave you certain advantages so finding access and outlets to that kind of trade finding outlets to uh, to to horses and weaponry and so on uh, was important as well so this this port to port expansion from the uh, western coast of india to the eastern coast of india of the bahmanis was not just political aggrandizement not just some kind of oh we must have more territory under control but also the fact that the more ports and the more sea routes you have under your control the more trade you have the richer you get the more cultural influences you can import consciously and let's say subconsciously into your into your realm and your defense technologies are also better so there is for that reason this great appetite for the ports in the deccan sultans as well yeah that 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 makes sense uh, and you know i was actually quite fascinated by this uh, thing you know you talk about feroz shah uh, used to send out ships for uh, persian soldiers and and horses and so on and i i was wondering i mean um, so so you know you're right and it is it's very interesting to hear about the spices of course which i think are often associated with certain geographical aspects about with dryness and so on uh but also you're right about architecture i remember reading that there is lava rock uh, in many parts of the deccan mm. which lends itself to more easier cutting and therefore there is yeah. there are more temples and so on uh in the deccan but another thing i read about the geography re- related to geography was because of that northern barrier uh that it seems to have been more in, in you know isolated in some ways or insulated from uh yeah. influence of, of different types and i'm wondering if that allowed for a more controlled um intake of foreign influence so on the one hand feroz shah is sending ships to bring you know foreigners in but then it allows him to control what type of foreign influence he wants rather than through land anybody coming in uh, and so on do you think there was some of that playing uh, there at all i think um, you know if you if you read deccan history in conjunction with say what's happening in ottoman turkey and so on you find that a lot of the sultanates of this period in fact i'm reading mark david bear's uh, book on the ottoman empire at the moment and it's fascinating how kings of this period tended very actively to attract certain types to attract certain kinds of talents and you know it could be anything from the kind of women you you attract into your i'm sorry you not attract but the women you bring or enslave and bring into your harem to the kind of you know military troops you have at your service there was a you're right there was a very conscious image of you know what precisely what kind of people and manpower they wanted to bring in uh, from foreign lands so I, i don't think the deccan was uh, any exception to that the other thing is you know i was it, you know sometimes it, it helps to clarify points through parallels right so in the late 18th century the maharaja of travancore asked the british uh, that you know look i have my own army but can you lend me a dozen officers to come and train the army and at this point of course the british say that's not possible <clears throat> and instead they have a subsidiary alliance or whatever that is formed and soon after that travancore goes under british supremacy but think of that right the raja's initial interest was that look european technologies european methods are changing the way battles are fought are changing the way uh, you know the military action takes place even in india therefore let me get some white men to come and train my brown troops in order to transform my army into a shape that it's also able to perform in the way these modernized european armies are able to perform now take this take if if that was the trend one political ruler saw we do need not suspect that a king in somewhere in the in the in the deccan would not have thought of it as well a lot of artillery technology was coming out of persia the ottoman empire and so on some of the greatest uh, gun casters some of the greatest like most talented people who knew how to shoot these guns as well they were they were coming out of that part of the world so you would want people like portuguese even krishna devaraya you know he he hired a, a band of portuguese snipers uh, in in the battle where he defeats uh, ismail adil shah uh, for the over, over raichur so clearly there was an association with westerners people from central uh, from uh, uh, iran uh, persia and uh, sorry ottoman empire and uh, eastern europe or what is now eastern europe and a certain kind of military technology which means they would have wanted that particular type of person to come into their courts and perhaps train their people or bring a certain kind of know-how into their courts uh, it's the same with artists also you know a lot of artists were imported from elsewhere precisely because there were certain styles etc that they uh, that they brought in and the kings and the rulers were keen on bringing those styles into their courts to the extent that you even have a dutch mannerist painter 
coming and painting in Bijapur at a certain point. So there's there's that happening. Control is also control over these immigrants is also interesting because you find since I mentioned this mannerist painter, you find that a lot of these people also spied for other powers. So I'm again sure the sultans would have been aware that when they allow, say, a Portuguese mercenary uh, band into their into their kingdom, into their capital, it's possible those guys are also reporting back to someone else and transmitting information. Now, kings, of course, would have made some kind of calculation uh, of as to how far the risk could be allowed and how far and where it should be stopped. But yeah, that would also have played on them. And so it's, again, uh, a very interesting set of influences that would be playing on a powerful person's mind, even when they engage with foreigners, uh, you know, everything to the, to the location where the foreigners are allowed to come and see the king, the kind of spec- spectacle that is put up for the, for the foreigners. All of this was often choreographed and not left to chance because if it's a traveler who's passing through say for example the Shah of Iran sends a, an ambassador uh, you're going to make sure he passes through some of your most splendid towns you're going to make sure that when he reaches your capital all he's going to see is impressive things because you want a certain image of your kingdom to be transmitted back to the Shah of Iran it was done with the Mughals also every time Mughal ambassadors came they ended up singing praises of some of the courts of these Deccan sultans not because these these courts would have consciously on an everyday basis been as splendid, but because a show was put up for the benefit of that uh, foreigner present in the court. So yes, it's a very fascinating, again, multi-layered kind of uh, exchange that's happening with foreigners and the sultans and the Deccan. Very, very interesting anecdotes there, Manu. And and you're right. I mean, of course, in that time when skills are not easily substitutable or imitable, then people become really coveted uh, resources. And I'm, I'm sure multiple people would be courting the same people with the same kind of uh, skills. Even I'm, you know, I recently um, went to Crete and read uh, a book about uh, the island. And I remember also reading about King Minos capturing Didylus, uh, the, the Greek inventor and architect, purely because his skills were not uh, replicable. So it, it also actually can put some some of those skillful people in in peril but yeah very very interesting anecdotes about how to control and what level of control may well, well be needed when courting uh, immigrants uh, we are nearly mm. out of time uh, nidhi do you want to ask a final question and then wrap up yeah i think so no this has been amazing isn't it we've spoken of geography we've spoken of history so many aspects i'll probably ask for a quick comment from you manu so as we're talking and reading about this book in previous time um i couldn't help but wonder um what would be the mental makeup of uh, these people especially those that were in the family of the tutors you know we are constantly reading of brothers being blinded and um, somebody being jailed just to avoid getting to the throne and i can't uh, help but wonder uh, what was the mental makeup which made them have this appetite for violence and a desire to sit on the throne also knowing that you know once you're on the throne it's not the end game still you're still then battling more constant mental pressures on how i stay on this throne and how do i protect a few loved ones um i, I can't um, i mean help but notice that in today's times where we are very consciously running mental health workshops for our adolescents how stark is this contrast do you do you have a comment on that Yeah it's a very interesting question but you know violence was very much and a very ordinary relatively everyday affair in that world and it wasn't just in the in the time the Deccan sultans were around all the way even to the early decades of the 19th century i one would even say even the mid 19th century uh, a lot of what we now deem barbaric etc would have been pretty standard at that time you know human life the kind of value attached to it as we do today is very different from the value attached to it at that time uh you know even something as as childbirth the number of mothers as well as infants who died uh sometimes in the process of childbirth sometimes shortly after you know these are things that have changed very much in the recent past whereas back in the day you that would not necessarily be the case so even you know uh, the loss of children you find that it, you know while it's recorded often it's 
the kind of unsentimental thing that you know happens uh, i'm reading parvati sharma's book on akbar and she actually talks about this one time where before jahangir is born who was akbar's living you know sub- the first son to survive he had a, a pair of twins and the twins died within a month and then you know soon after there was some kind of party there was some kind of big celebration it didn't really throw any kind of uh, gloom over the court yeah. i mean for a certain period there would have been mourning because it's the emperor's children but after that back to normal because this is the way life was so life was cheap in that period which means that a lot of values that we perhaps associate today with it uh, did not necessarily exist at that time i'm not making a good or bad uh, kind of distinction but i'm saying that you know they would have perhaps approached these questions from a completely different mental makeup than our own uh, you know right. we in in today's world where people live longer uh, where, where you know you can recover from an illness with relative ease all of these things uh, have made us somehow i don't know less prepared for death i suppose at at a certain level whereas in those days death was a constant affair all around you all the time uh, you know certain if you if you if, if where i come from in kerala you know you there are certain months or certain months of the year where they say ha this is the month when a lot of people die because you know it's the climate it's the change it's the rains uh, you know uh, a lot of people are cold i suppose and and those who are old and infirm end up just dying in that time nobody sitting there actually taking care of them and offering them blankets and this and that so even months get associated with death because that's just how the way uh, how the world is at that time um political violence again was uh, considered very much part of the norm you see it in vijayanagara also the brothers can kill brothers and somebody ends up killing his father dynasties can be toppled uh, you know krishna devaraya's own brother asks the minister to go and kill krishna devaraya luckily krishna devaraya's the minister is more loyal to krishna devaraya than the brother right. so he produces goat size and says okay look i've killed your brother and the ruler dies thinking that the line of succession is firmly now secured for his children only for krishna devaraya to reemerge and seize the throne so violence around power was also very much uh, a very normal activity at that time and uh, you know in in the ottoman court also they had a, a norm for the longest time that every sultan who came to power would invariably slaughter any male threat to his power there was no question of keeping them alive yeah. uh, every time women uh, you know royal concubines of the ottomans when they had one son the moment you had a male heir and the, the child was likely to survive and grow the mother and the son were sent off from the court the mother had no business producing another son with the sultan she was sent off to the provinces and there she would raise her son and then the sultan would have his next son with another lady mm-hmm. there was so even something like that the idea of a family is somehow more is is, is in a sense dealt with in a slightly more clinical way because you're not just raising your children you're raising future sovereigns you're raising future princes and therefore even if there are five children and they're all your children uh survival of the fittest i suppose you know yeah. politically speaking because so much is connected to the king if the king is not the strongest if the king is not the fittest then the kingdom itself is in peril as you yourself in the question uh, hinted you know even after you come into power power is a very fickle substance it can leave your hands very quickly Uh, in, in the famous story of Shah Jahan, he fell ill and he didn't appear at his at at the window where he showed himself to his subjects for a certain number of weeks, and it sent people into into a, it sent rumors all over the country saying that the king might be dead and set off a civil war between his sons, even when in reality he was alive. Because these are times when communication is different. You know, there's there isn't that kind of speed. The king's person has to be seen by the people because that's so much stability depends on the king being alive, being visible, being active. So. again uh, a lot of these things our world view and our way of looking at it is very different from how the contemporaries of that time would have seen it partly because our own culture now uh, you know has has changed the way we approach these things uh, a term like human rights would make no sense at all to these people uh, 300 years ago because they would they would probably perhaps laugh at the idea of human rights there you know so it's it's a completely different period we're talking about uh, which is not to say there weren't painful incidents there were there wasn't love between uh, parents and children and so on there was all of that is also true but uh, it's it's just revolving around a different set of values and systems than perhaps uh, we today in our world uh, would like to associate with yeah absolutely i i don't think there was also anything around self actualization like we were saying why don't some of the brothers just say okay we don't want to sit on the throne we rally behind <laughs> you go ahead and sit don't blind us anymore so yeah it- no 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 question because <laughs> the thing is it's not about the brother saying anything right it's i mean why were little boys sometimes killed for the simple reason right. that even if the boy is no threat 
for factions at court because as i said powers dispersed among so many people you know further away from the capital you are the more powerful your chief the chieftain over there is vis-a-vis the king you know there's there is a the power sort of the king becomes weaker those chieftains can easily gather around a rival claimant to the throne and say look we don't like this king there's a little 8 year old boy who's the king's cousin also from the same family let's just pledge allegiance to the boy and then kick off this king so any threat to the power even from a child was a very potent political threat right all right so this has been amazing and i know we have so many more questions but i'm very conscious of time um i'm very sorry i also be very long <laughs> no, answer no they are so fascinating i think they contributed to it <laughs> no it is no, such a good yes and i think in a lot of ways you've answered some of the questions in you know in your answers already so so that is really amazing it's made for a great conversation and um, i totally uh, love the book i know kam uh, did too and uh, while we learned so much uh, for me um, at the heart of hearts i was rooting for the rebel sultans to somehow win a fight that we already knew is a lost <laughs> fight and yeah. um, with all of this history i think um, so kamini opens with um, some of the poetry i would love to close with one because all of the history comes out beautifully when you dabble in a poetry so for the rebel sultans um, who fought a battle which for most part they knew they can never overcome the might of the mughals uh here's something by fais um jis thaj se koi makhtal mein gaya wo sham salamat rehti hai ye jaan to aani jaani hai is jaan ki koi baat nahi i'm reminded of that in so many places it basically means the pomp and show and the style with which you meet your end is what lingers on forever and uh, your wow. own life doesn't matter lives come and go there's no big deal about it but how you come to your end uh with glory or with power or with pride what lingers on and i really felt that has what stayed on for me for the rebel sultans whether it was um the qutub shah telling the soldier not to shoot at aurangzeb because the prince deserves a certain treatment and a certain threat or all mm. through in fact so yeah. um thank you so much manu for writing this book i think it's been a thank you thank you for reading and thank you for the very wise questions <laughs> all right thank you manu thank you and thanks to ev- any everybody who was online listening yes and uh, we will come back soon again kamini and i with another book uh, until then i'm going to shortly share the link um, of this podcast should soon be up on audible hoping to good thank you bye thanks okay thanks bye